Hello again, everyone, wherever you may be, and welcome to the 160th edition of KHOI Community Radio's Capital Week, your window on the world of Iowa politics, where we explore and analyze who's been making news in and around the state capitol, what that news is, and what it all means. We are glad you're with us. I'm Dennis Hart, joined as always by my partner in politics, Laura Bellin of the blog site Bleeding Heartland. Welcome, Laura. Good to be here, Dennis. Laura, we have plenty to discuss tonight about what happened in the state legislature last week, and that is coming up. But first, we just have to talk about some of what happened on the national level last week because it's important, and it may all play a role in the upcoming primaries and the November election. First, the U.S. Supreme Court seemed poised last Thursday to let the former president, Trump, remain on the Colorado ballot. This is a big, big case. Yes, the oral arguments were last Thursday, and, and the attorneys I follow who listened to them said that they really the only question is whether it's a 9-0 decision, whether they're united around one line of reasoning or whether there are multiple lines of reasoning that get them to the same conclusion. But it certainly seemed like all of the justices are poised to let the former president be on the ballot. Yes, this after the Colorado court had uh, taken him off the ballot saying he had engaged in insurrection. So there are a number of avenues they could take. I mean, the court could say that what happened on January 6, 2021, didn't rise to the level of an insurrection as the framers of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution envisioned. There are also other arguments about whether the president is actually an officer of the United States. And there are some more complex legal arguments than that as well. But And whether a state can take somebody off the ballot in a federal election or whether that would require an act of Congress to do that. Also, on this Monday afternoon, former President Trump asked the Supreme Court to block a lower court ruling that he can be criminally prosecuted for his efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. Yes, this was today was the deadline for him to ask for a stay of that ruling from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals that rejected his arguments about presidential immunity. So we still don't know. It's it is expected that the U.S. Supreme Court will hear his appeal. It's always possible that they could reject it. But if they do accept the appeal, then the question is whether they expedite it or whether it's something where they could come up with a ruling in June or early July. And I should say, by the way, that I went to a subcommittee in the Iowa Senate today, and uh, there's an election bill that contains a lot of moving parts. But one of them is that provision that would say that somebody, a presidential candidate, can't be removed from the ballot in Iowa over a felony conviction. Meanwhile, last week, the Justice Department notified President Biden it would not pursue criminal charges for his handling of classified documents. And it also said that report that Mr. Biden had presented himself as a sympathetic, well-meaning, elderly man with a poor memory, and that has roiled Washington. Yes, well, that aspect of special counsel Robert Hur's report drew a lot of criticism from some people who felt that that was the kind of editorial comment that a prosecutor would normally not make in this kind of a, a charging report on whether they were going to bring charges because elsewhere it, the document said that the evidence didn't support bringing charges. And then it said, well, we we didn't want to bring charges because we thought that he might be very sympathetic to a jury. I wanted to say quickly that there is an Iowa connection to this report. Uh, the deputy special counsel to Robert Hur is Mark Crickbaum. He was the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Iowa during the Trump administration. And uh, he worked, I don't think that the report credits him exactly, but he certainly worked on the report and the White House counsel in their letter objecting to some of the language in the report. It was addressed to both Robert Hur and Mark Crickbaum. Meanwhile, in the U.S. Senate last week, both of Iowa's U.S. senators voted against a sweeping national security and border reform package, joining most other Senate Republicans and a handful of Democrats. 
So this is a paradoxical situation because the White House in October had asked Congress to quickly pass a foreign aid bill that included, among other things, about $60 billion for Ukraine and about $14 billion for Israel. And uh, largely within Republican ranks, they said, well, no, we want to include some kind of border and immigration provisions as part of this. And so negotiators have been spending months on trying to come up with a compromise on this. And when they when they reached a compromise that was acceptable, the, the lead Republican negotiator was Senator James Langford of Oklahoma. Then all of a sudden, many Republicans in Congress said they actually don't want border security measures to be part of that bill. And so it was a, a paradoxical situation. So Iowa Senators Chuck Grassley and Joni Ernst were among the majority of the Republican caucus who voted down that bill last week. And then right after that, the Senate voted 67 to 32 to advance an emergency aid bill for Ukraine and Israel and Senators Grassley and Ernst joined Democrats to move it forward. Yes, this is they're, they're, they haven't voted on the substance of the bill yet, but they've they take a series of procedural votes to proceed with the debate, and that uh, Senators Grassley and Ernst were supportive of that. So again, this is very similar to what the White House originally requested, a bill that has foreign aid. I think there's also some aid for Taiwan in there, but the main parts of it are aid to Ukraine and Israel. And um, But this is the part that is not going to have the immigration provisions. Then, So it seems very clear that it's going to pass the Senate this week. And then the question is, will the House leadership bring this to the floor of the House? And if all of this wasn't enough, the U.S. House failed to impeach last week Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas on Tuesday, and Iowa's four GOP congressional members, they voted to impeach him. They did. And I, I think that this is going to be brought to the floor again tomorrow. They had a couple of absences last week, and it only failed by one vote. So I think that it's possible he will be impeached. There's also an Iowa connection. Uh, the only previous cabinet official to have been impeached was William Belknap. He was the Secretary of War under Ulysses Grant, and he was actually an Iowa Civil War veteran. He wasn't originally from Iowa, but he had moved to Iowa, served in the Iowa legislature, and then held senior positions in the Union Army during the Civil War. And he was impeached, it was over a corruption scandal. So what's different about this impeachment of the Homeland Security Secretary is that he's not accused of any criminal offense or personal corruption. This is just related to, uh, according to House Republicans, his failure to secure the border. Meanwhile, in the state legislature last week, just a few things came up. I'm being facetious. A lot came up. First thing we should talk about is that the first Funnel deadline is coming up this Friday, February 16th. Let's explain what that is. Again, so this is for most legislation, not including anything that relates to taxes or budget spending. There are a couple of other exceptions, but those are the main exceptions. So policy bills, for the most part, they have to be approved by at least one committee in either the Iowa House or the Iowa Senate to remain alive and eligible for consideration this year. Leadership can make exceptions, but those are rare. So that is why last week and this week, huge flurry of activity to get bills through subcommittee and committee in time for this deadline. All right, let's dig into it. Governor Reynolds planned to merge and redesign mental health and behavioral health into one system advanced last week. That's right. And the governor's uh, area education agency's bill has been stalled, but on uh, several of the low, lower profile things that she's asked the legislature to do, those are moving forward. So yes, um, re this is something where uh, mental health services versus substance abuse services, they would be in different treatment networks. And it's um, it, it's something that the, you, the Department of Health and Human Services supports. All right. A House subcommittee last week advanced a bill increasing the penalties for non-consensual death of an unborn person. 
So this is already illegal in Iowa. This would uh, raise the felony level and so raise the penalties for causing the death. But, but I think the key aspect of this bill is that it would rephrase the law. So instead of, of somebody being convicted of ending a human pregnancy without consent, they would be ending a, the life of an unborn person. And I think that that could be advantageous in the from the state's perspective when they're about to go to the Iowa Supreme Court later this year and arguing for the abortion ban, the near total abortion ban to be upheld. So that's why many people, even though this is already a criminal offense in Iowa, reproductive rights advocates, including Planned Parenthood advocates of Iowa were very against this bill last week. All right, here's one that is oh so controversial. Republican lawmakers last week advanced the governor's bill defining sex and requiring gender ID markers. Yes, it's controversial. So this is the bill that defines in state law what is man, woman, mother, father, and defines it in terms based on sex assigned at birth. And then uh, the original draft of it would have also said that driver people, transgender people would have to have on their driver's license something that displayed their sex assigned at birth as well as their current sex designation. That driver's license portion of the bill was taken out during the committee when it, as it moved through the House Education Committee, but birth certificates for transgender Iowans would still be different. And there would still be, I think a main purpose of the bill would be to allow for um, separate uh, accommodations for transgender people. So it could be seen as like a backdoor way to get a bathroom bill and also um, ensure that a transgender women, for instance, would be forced to use uh, facilities designed for men. And the House set to have a public hearing on this bill late this Monday afternoon. Yes. And in fact, as we're recording, the, the hearing is ongoing now. And it's not clear when this bill will be brought to the floor of the Iowa House for debate. I would guess that it will happen after the funnel week, but it, it could happen as soon as this week. All right. Something that happened this Monday afternoon, a House panel gave its approval to a bill that would codify rules that require jobless Iowans to complete at least four job searches every week while they're collecting jobless benefits. This is related to a bill that we talked about in 2022, where it that did a number of things to reduce unemployment benefits. The main item of that bill was reducing the maximum amount of benefits that could be collected from 26 weeks to 16 weeks. But there were also provisions about increasing the number of weekly job searches that people had to demonstrate they would perform. So this the Iowa Workforce Development Agency has been enforcing these regulations, but this would put them in Iowa code. And labor advocates are very opposed to that because they said, if you imagine something like the coronavirus pandemic happening again, where an unemployment just absolutely skyrocketed, you can file an emergency um, a suspension of an administrative rule and say, we just got to process all these unemployment claims as quickly as we can. But once it's in code, in Iowa code, the agency wouldn't really have that flexibility and they couldn't do anything about it unless the legislature passed a new law that then got to the governor's desk and signed it. So it, it makes the agency less nimble. And that's why this was controversial. These requirements are already being enforced on jobless Iowans right now. And if you think there was a lot going on in the legislature last week, you haven't heard the half of it yet. It's, it's busy time. Last week, a House subcommittee advanced a bill that does away with the need to have a balance, yes, a balance of men and women on commissions. 
Iowa was the first state to pass one of these laws, and very few states actually have them on the books. This has been in effect in Iowa since 1987, but this has become a partisan issue now in the legislature, and it was the same on the House subcommittee as it had been on the Senate side previously, that all of the Republicans supported moving this bill forward. They said that if there was a need for this law in 1987, it's no longer needed. Uh, the Governor Reynolds has asked the legislature to do this, and the Democrats are very opposed to it, but they don't have the votes to stop it. Also last week, the governor's bill advancing postpartum Medicaid advanced. Uh, we should say that she wants it to extend to 12 months for new mothers. The bill would uh, bump it from its current 60 days. I listened to the subcommittee last week, and it was a very lively discussion, and, and it was almost everybody who spoke on the bill said that they support the expansion, but they urged the legislature not to reduce the eligibility for Medicaid, because the, the way the governor has proposed doing this, she would pay for extending postpartum coverage from 60 days to 12 months by lowering the income level so that far fewer women would qualify for Medicaid coverage during pregnancy at all. And there were some logistical points raised. One thing that I didn't realize is that if you become pregnant and you're not eligible for Medicaid, it's not so easy just to go and sign up on the exchange, like the healthcare exchange as part of the Affordable Care Act has certain enrollment periods during the year. And if you get pregnant outside of one of those enrollment periods, you might not be able to get coverage at all. All right. The GOP in both the House and the Senate have given their first approval to a religious freedom bill. That's what they're calling it. Yes, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. A lot of states have passed this, and it is a very controversial issue, very uh, strongly opposed by the LGBTQ community, which sees it as a way that businesses could discriminate against certain groups of people and claim that they it, they were acting on the basis of their religious beliefs. And this is something that I, I remember when we had talked about a couple of weeks ago that that House subcommittee voted down the effort to remove gender identity as a protected class under the Iowa Civil Rights Act. And I heard some speculation that maybe there had been this grand bargain that they wouldn't advance that bill, but they would advance this bill that allows businesses to discriminate. Now, ironically, the business community lobbyists are generally against this bill. They feel that this would be detrimental to the climate, the workforce climate, and recruiting and retaining staff. But it it looks to me like uh, this is very much on track. It's already funnel-proof because it's already been approved by committees. Meanwhile, last week, and it seems as if I'm saying that a lot tonight, meanwhile, last week, because there was a lot of meanwhile last week, the Senate Judiciary Committee passed a bill requiring incarcerated people to be in prisons along with people of the same biological sex. And this is just really a targeted version. It, this would, I think, be covered also by the governor's bill that's going to be considered in the Iowa House soon. But yes, this is the idea that somebody sex assigned at birth is what would determine where they were incarcerated. It was a party line vote in the committee level. The Democrats are very opposed to this bill. And there was action on something called a medical conscience bill. Yes, this is something that, again, and, and, and the medical community, the, the lobby groups oppose this. Uh, the people supporting it say that individual doctors, uh, physicians, they, they should be able to decline to do certain procedures or treat certain patients for religious reasons. And I, I think that it was it was envisioned maybe to protect uh, doctors from having to do things like abortions, which they already aren't forced to do. Uh, the medical community is very concerned about this one. But again, it was a party line vote uh, in the Senate Judiciary Committee. And I do expect this one to be brought to the Senate floor fairly soon. Meanwhile, the House Education Committee uh, sprang into action and advanced a bill requiring public schools to teach about the Holocaust. 
Yes, and the chair of the House Education Committee last week, Skylar Wheeler, said that the impetus for this bill was the idea that there was some poll that showed among Gen Z there was a pretty high level of ignorance about just basic facts about the Holocaust. And the Democrats on the Education Committee did support this bill. The, the a person who was on the subcommittee, Heather Matson, she did express some concerns about exactly which curriculum would be used. You don't want to be too specific in state code about which kinds of curriculum. Of course, there are a number of different museums and institutions that have created Holocaust curriculum for different age levels and grade levels. It is 16 minutes after the hour. Wherever you're listening to us, yes, we're going fast tonight. You're in tune with KHUI Radio's Capital Week, your one-stop source for everything political going on in Iowa. I'm Dennis Hart with Laura Bellin, and we are now in our fourth year, yes, fourth year, of being here in the same time slot to talk about politics with an Iowa flavor, because we really enjoy talking about politics with an Iowa flavor. All right, House Subcommittee advanced a bill promoting, yes, bicycle safety. As this is a non-controversial bill, the Republican chair of the subcommittee, Thomas Gerhold, it's something that's important to him. And this would say that already in, under current Iowa law, drivers have to yield to pedestrians and crosswalks. And this would say that they also have to yield to bicyclists. Uh, now, Representative Gerhold mentioned that he's also introduced a separate bill that will ex expand the definition of pedestrians to include people who use scooters, wheelchairs, uh, people pushing a baby carriage, just to make sure that, that those groups of people would also be protected in crosswalks, and it's likely that those are going to be combined into one bill before this comes to the Iowa House floor. Also last week, the House subcommittee advanced a bill to cap payments from nursing homes and hospitals to temporary agencies. The nursing home industry is one of the most powerful lobby groups at the legislature, and so th there are all kinds of issues related to staffing. And uh, since I think it's, they even predate the coronavirus pandemic, but of course the pandemic exacerbated the staffing issues. And then it becomes very expensive to hire temporary staffers. So the legislature has done this before where they have passed things that are designed to help nursing homes. And this is part of that constellation of bills. I will say that the Iowa Senate Democrats are pushing for more oversight of nursing homes. And I'm not sure, I mean, they're introducing legislation on that this week, but I don't see any sign in the majority party that they're going to go in that direction. All right. Meanwhile, some restrictions on pornography and social media are advancing, and these are also uh, controversial. And there are multiple bills, and I haven't delved into the details of these because it sounds like they're going to be amended substantially. I mean, the House, the person who had sponsored one of the bills, uh, State Representative John Wills, he said he had learned even after introducing the bill, he learned some things about how phones work that he didn't realize. So he said, we're going to have to do an amendment. So somewhere, I, I think the legislature is going to take some kind of action on this. It probably is going to be more targeted toward uh, keeping minors off pornography sites rather than a broad-based, let's say, a ban on people under 18 registering for a social media account or things like that. There were there have been various attempts to do that or require more written parental consent, and that gets very complicated because of the way some of these social media platforms work. Like that lawmaker, I am always learning about things involving my phone that I never knew before. <laughs> so, none of them pornography. None of that. No. <laughs> right. uh, a Senate bill, state Senate bill, would shake up how libraries are funded. This is quite interesting. This has become one of the big controversies. So there are three different library bills. And the the third, there were two introduced in the Senate. One was pulled. Uh, the second one was passed through a subcommittee on a party line vote this morning. I did listen to the meeting. The library people are very against this. There's a separate bill in the House that advanced from a subcommittee last week. I, the 
the original proposal would have been pretty far reaching and it could have caused a lot of small town libraries to lose their funding. This one, according to the bill sponsor, this is very targeted to just give city councils more control over certain staffing and management decisions of library boards, uh, library interests, and a lot of librarians and members of library boards from all over the state came to speak at the subcommittee that they are concerned about this opening the door to more political interference with how libraries are managed. All right, a Senate subcommittee advanced a bill shortening student teaching requirements. And this continues. We've seen a lot of bills along these lines. Last year, we there were some bills that reduced the requirement for substitute teachers um, that created alternative teacher licensing pathways. And, and this is in that. So it's there. All of these bills have the same goal to address the teacher shortage. And the, the problem with this, I mean, I think that depending on how it's done, the Democrat who was on this subcommittee was open to some of the ideas, but she's a teacher herself, Molly Donahue, but she said she was concerned about making it so short. She said certainly based on her experience, four, year, four weeks of student teaching would not be enough to prepare someone to be in a classroom. And then there's a bill that would extend the state's college savings plan. Yeah, so this one is, this has bipartisan support, so it's related to these 529 college savings plans, which all states have. I, I, it sounds like there's a bit of a legal complication here where they want this to be able to cover some apprenticeship programs, and the problem is some of those might not be covered under federal law, so it sounded like they might need to work on the language a little bit more. But in principle, this is something Democrats and Republicans both support, allowing, making it easier for people to do different career pathways and use these college savings plan funding. Meanwhile, we all know that college tuition rates are going up, and Iowa Democrats introduced a bill to tackle that last week. Yeah, so this was part of the Iowa Democratic agenda is so that an incoming student would be guaranteed that their tuition would not continue to increase while they were continuing their undergraduate degree. There's a separate proposal as part of a larger Republican bill on DEI at state universities that would cap annual tuition increases at 3% a year. Uh, the Board of Regents opposes, I think, both of those ideas. And then there's the bill that would let cities and counties cap rent cost advances. Well, this is this is an unusual one because usually the legislature is trying to restrict what cities and counties can regulate, and there are a number of bills that are still alive right now that would restrict local government authority in certain areas, like with topsoil or stormwater ordinances. So this would go the opposite way. Right now, cities and counties can't have rent control, and this would allow them to establish rent control. So I'm going to have to learn a little bit more about what was the impetus for this. Of course, the home, home builders, um, commercial real estate people, they're very against this bill. The apartment owners uh, feel that this is going to cut into their profits. And let me just read the headline on that in the right way. A bill letting cities and counties cap rents costs advances. That's the way it should have been read, Laura. All right. <laughs> Another bill advanced. I'll try to read this one correctly. Blocking <laughs> drone surveillance of livestock. I, I admit that I missed this one last year. This is one of sometimes these bills that are less controversial, uh, they, they don't attract as much notice. So this is one that the House approved last year, but it didn't get any action in the Senate, but it's, it's alive right now in the Senate Natural Resources Committee. This is, the idea is that you couldn't fly drones within a certain distance of animal confinements or feedlots, and then there would be increased penalties and if if you actually had some kind of recording device. This is part of the legislature 
legislature has over the past decade passed a number of laws to try to restrict or prevent unauthorized surveillance or recording at livestock facilities. And this is a, another example of that type of law. Meanwhile, a new eminent domain bill is gaining momentum in the House. We should say that state lawmakers, some, are upset about the use of eminent domain by carbon capture pipeline companies to put pipelines on uh, private property. And uh, there's uh, uh, upsetness, uh, shall I say, about this. Yeah, I mean, it's something that a lot of people are passionate about, particularly in the Republican Party, but although there are also Democrats who are passionate about it. So remember, last year, the Iowa House approved on a bipartisan vote, a bit of a scrambled vote, because there was bipartisan support and opposition, an eminent domain bill that would restrict the use of eminent domain for uh, carbon capture pipelines. It didn't go anywhere. The Senate just buried it. It was There was not even a subcommittee hearing on it. So this is take two. Haven't seen any evidence that this approach would have more legs in the Senate than last year's, but this one is, is strange. I'm not I, I'm not sure of an example of or a precedent for this, that a certain number of state legislators, either 21 in the state House or 11 in the state Senate, could kind of on their own halt eminent domain proceedings. I'm not really sure how that would work. With the, normally, right now, the way it works, the Iowa Utilities Board, which has three members appointed by the governor, they are empowered to determine which projects have eminent domain. So anyway, this, this is interesting. Um, it just is, it is evidence that a lot of people in the Iowa House still want to do something. They're upset about land possibly being seized. And um, so, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see this come to the floor of the House, but I would be surprised if it goes anywhere in the upper chamber. Meanwhile, there was a mixed development here on a House panel uh, bill, a bill rejecting the Department of Natural Resources purchases, uh, a bill that would, uh, it was failed in the State House, but it advanced in the Iowa Senate. And we've seen versions of this in the past. This is something that comes up every year. Usually the Iowa Farm Bureau tends to be the main group supporting this, that they don't want to make it easy for the Department of Natural Resources to buy land and take it out of agricultural production. And last year, there was a similar bill like this. It couldn't get out of committee, so it, it died in the second funnel in the House. And so this one, so far, it was rejected by a House subcommittee. I actually went to the Iowa, the, the Department of or I'm sorry, the Natural Resource Committee hearing where they had the DNR director, Kayla Lyon, she came and spoke and she was presenting on a range of topics related to her agency, but she did address this. And she said she wanted to make sure that the legislature knew that they have a process that they, it, it's a very strict process for determining what land they purchase. They don't purchase land. If there's a scoring that if land is considered uh, very prime for agriculture, that's that is a lower score where the agency is less likely to acquire that. And generally, they're looking at acquiring land that wouldn't be that good for row crop production. All right, we have about three minutes left. Here is a bill that has just tickled my fancy. It's a bill that would create a raccoon bounty program. Yes, I'm serious, a raccoon bounty program, and it's controversial. So I went to this the House Environmental Protection Committee last Wednesday thinking like, okay, well, I don't, the only thing on the agenda was this raccoon bounty thing. The, the idea is allow people to turn in uh, raccoon tails and get five bucks a piece. And the goal would be to reduce the raccoon population. But the House Environmental Protection Committee rarely meets and rarely considers any legislation. And so the Democrats on the committee, unexpectedly for me, they turned this into a, a broader indictment of how the, the committee is not engaging with the environmental issues they aren't considering any bills that are related to flooding, uh, 
uh, climate change, um, the water quality, uh, very, the air pollution. So, so it turned into something. I mean, it did advance. The committee did uh, approve it, so it, it has gotten through the funnel. But uh, it, like I said, it turned it. The Democrats on the House Environmental Protection Committee are not happy. Last year, in fact, that committee did not consider any bills at all, and this was only the second bill that they've considered this year. The first was related to campground septic systems. Between raccoon bounties and drones surveilling livestock, what in the world is life coming to? I'll tell you. All right, here's a House bill, and this is going to have potentially a very interesting impact. It's going to allow local candidates to appear on ballots with party labels. And I don't know how much support this is. This is something that the House Education Committee chair wants to do, and so he may get it through his committee. I'm not sure how far this would get in the legislature. Right now, city and school board elections are nonpartisan. They have become a little bit more partisan-tinged. We do see more candidates running on slates with the support of their local Democratic or Republican activists, but I'm just not sure that there's going to be an appetite in the legislature to make these local elections into partisan elections. All right, we have a, about a minute left, and we must talk about your exclusive. Iowa State University bought a $5 million plane for athletics. Yeah, so this is something that I, I did a lot of reporting. Before we did the show, Dennis, I did a lot of reporting in 2016 and 2017 on the airplane scandal involving the former ISU president, Stephen Leith. This is different. This is so far no indication that anything was misused. But I thought it was interesting because the ISU Foundation uh, facilitated this transaction using cash reserves of the athletics department, and it didn't go to the Iowa Board of Regents for approval. Normally, the Board of Regents would approve equipment purchases that are larger than $2 million. So uh, this is one that it, it replaces. It's going to replace a plane that the university acquired in 2014. This is a small plane. This is not big enough to take the football team or the basketball team to games. This is going to be used primarily for the coaching staff for recruiting trips. But $5 million is quite expensive. The university told me they expect that that net cost will be reduced when they sell this older plane. Uh, but we'll see. I'm going to be following up on that. And by the way, the president of ISU today, Wendy Winterstein, she did address this when she was presenting to the Iowa House Education Appropriations Subcommittee, and she explained that the King Air, which was the older plane, it needed a lot of repairs, including a new engine, and that's why they felt it would be more cost-effective to invest in a new plane. Good report on your part, Laura. Good research, and anybody who wants to know more about this, it's on your website. That's right. It's at Bleeding Heartland. Thank you. If it seems as if we've been going fast tonight, there's been a lot to go fast about. And next week, we're going to go even faster, potentially, because it's final week. We're going to talk about all the word, the legislation that made the final and that which didn't. Oh, and there, I mean, I, we, I went to two subcommittees today about bills that we haven't even talked about yet. So we'll try to get to them next week. You bet. All right. Laura and I will indeed be back here next week at the same time on Capital Week. And we'll be talking about everything interesting, important, or entertaining about politics Iowa style. And of course, the views and opinions expressed here did not necessarily reflect the opinions of KHOI or its staff. So until next week at this time, thank you so much for the privilege of your time. We appreciate it and we value it. Between now and then, let's all go ahead and have a safe, healthy, and happy week.